You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, you can do better than that. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, that's much better. Okay, first of all, I want to thank the Enoch Pratt Library, Judy Cooper. I want to thank this woman right here, Vivian Fisher. She runs this African-American Studies Department at the library. Give it up. Thank you. I want to thank my um, board member, City Lit Project. I think Dana's here. And um, Tracy Diamond, Enoch Pratt Library, period. And Teresa over there. I see you. Okay, my name is Carla Dupre. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. And before I introduce this amazing author tonight, I want to tell you, please save the date. April 14th, Saturday, April 14th, City Lit Festival holds their 15th festival. We have a dynamic lineup for you. If you're a poet, if you write creative nonfiction, if you write fiction, you need to be there at this free event. Just check us out at citylitproject.org, okay? All right. Real talk. At first, we wrestled with the idea of having an event on Valentine's Day. But in light of this book and the love that springs from these very pages, I think we can get our love on tonight, don't you think? (laughs) I think so. Okay, you should know that Tayari Jones has been inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. She is the author of four novels, Leave in Atlanta, The Untelling, Silver Sparrow, and now Oprah's latest book club edition, American Marriage. Give it up. Do you know how awesome that is? Come on, people. Woo! Yes. That is a big deal. And she's here. She's ours tonight. So we're really excited about that. But we're going to get a little bit serious first, okay, because we have to talk a little bit about how this book came to be. In recent travels, I've been privy to many statistics where it concerns mass incarceration and the notion of justice. With the One Maryland Book finalist selections and with local celebrated artist Paul Rucker, whose visual art installation of a United States map flashes the light of the proliferation of prisons in different parts of this country, all set to music, an audience rendered silent by this horrific visual interpretation. An American marriage is a love story, But before I share thoughts about this new work, I would be remiss if I didn't share a few statistics to set the stage of how this story came to be. These numbers are according to the American Civil Liberties Union and the Prison Policy Initiative. Representing just 5% of the world's population, we now hold 25% of its inmates. Criminal justice is the second fastest growing category of state budgets behind only Medicaid, and 90% of that spending goes to prisons. Black Americans were incarcerated in state prisons at an average rate of 5.1 times that of white Americans. And in some states, that rate was as high as 10 times or more. 2.3 million people are locked in cages. That number alone should take your breath. In this system, there are 1,719 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 901 juvenile correctional facilities, 3,163 county jails, and 76 Indian country jails, as well as military prisons, immigration detention facilities, civil commitment centers, and prisons in the U.S. territories. 
Confinement is just one slice of the correctional control pie. The U.S. justice system controls almost 7 million people, more than half who are on probation. I don't know about you, but as an African-American woman, several of my kin have come real close to contact with the criminal justice system. Every man in my family, including my twin boys, my husband, my brothers, have been stopped by police, have had guns drawn in their faces, have sat on a curb, handcuffed while the men in blue search for their legitimacies or follow them home. Each time this happens, we know we are one step closer to a crude penal system, one step removed from a witness who thinks the suspect is always black. I share these staggering statistics to inform you that our featured author today, Tayari Jones, did all the research, read the new Jim Crow, along with oral testaments of those who have been incarcerated. With the weight of these figures, she created a story of characters whose lives were wrapped around these numbers, and all that hard work came down to eavesdropping on an intimate conversation of a couple at a mall. That and the act of peeling the skin off life behind bars and the way it affected the lives of ordinary people. In Celestial, the artistic and independent wife left struggling how long to dutifully hang on to Roy, wrongfully charged and waiting like so many African-American men behind bars in a judicial system that means them no good. To Andre, loving and caring in the way you'd want a man to love and care for you. Tayari Jones takes us there. If ever there was a love story, it's an American marriage. From parental love to friendship love, from husband and wife love, and ultimately to self-love. You'll find it right here between characters who live in the world and off the page. This story forces us to reckon with a criminal justice system that tears lives asunder and make no mistake about it, rips the fabric of family, parents, and perhaps the most vulnerable of all, children. Her story turns on what it feels like to be left behind with no short steps of a future, to be the one that sits with the heel of blame mocking their every day and crowding every wish to seek freedom in a different light, his or hers, and to claim what belongs to them. There are passages that will grip you with raw energy and insight into human nature and show you subtle ways how we deny the pain of a bleak reality, how we love through the pain and the fear of losing what's rightfully ours. This is a story about good people, y'all. Celestial, Andre, and Roy are good people who in every instance show us their humanity. If you've ever been young and in love, if you've ever pined for something beyond your control and your reach, grappling with the day that God would make it right, this will fill you to the brim. And I have to tell you, when I read one part about Roy, I cried outright at the many families who had years of change confronting them, lovers or spouses who had moved on, children who had raised themselves, jobs and promises, lost because prison time does that to you, waits for no one, wipes out dreams and forces you to reckon with what's left to do with the life of ruin in its wake. Mostly though, we know all too well the human costs to generations beyond anything financial to those who suffer in the hands of incarceration, for spirits lost and hardships gained. Perhaps you're way too familiar watching the backside of someone led out of the courtroom in handcuffs, snatched in a system too ruthless to care about his good reputation. Perhaps the saddest thing of all about this book is knowing that it's just one story of so many others, a story well told and hard to forget. We thank Tayari Jones for this love letter, this tender call for mercy, for our men who hold their own in spite of a dismissive world, for our women who have agency, for our elders who hold us accountable, to teach to each of them who stand in the wake of everyday travesties, this here is a love story 
We see you, we hear you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tayari Jones. Thank you everybody for coming out and filling up this big room. You know, this is my, this is my fourth book. And when I wrote my first book, I didn't have much of a book tour, but one of the few places that invited me to come talk about my book was this library. And I promise that every book I ever write, I will always come back here. Because when I was just starting out, you know, I was just, I was a kid. I was like just 30. And I didn't know, when you write a, a novel, you don't know if it's going to reach anybody. You feel like you just wrote a letter in a bottle, like you just put it in there, and you just hope it washed up somewhere. And I felt like it did wash up in Baltimore, and I'll always come back here. So thank you for that. And a lot has happened since then. I wrote some other books, and I wrote this book, An American Marriage. And as you all know, one day I was just driving my car, and you know how you have the radio, the, your phone going through your radio, and it rang, and I just answered it because it was a, a new car. I didn't know how to work it, so I didn't look at the caller ID or anything. And I said, hello, and the voice said, hi, this is Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she's accustomed to people freaking out, so she waited. She let me go through it. <laughs> and then I think I went through it too long, and she was like, okay, enough, enough. And she says she wanted to choose this book for her book club because she cares about the families of incarcerated people. She cares about incarcerated people. She wanted to choose this book because she liked the book, but she liked what it was about, too. And I received some really excellent news today on the drive here when I was stuck in traffic. <laughs> Y'all, I'm from Atlanta. You think, I think I know traffic. <laughs> but this was some traffic. That's why I'm late. But I found out that um, this book is going to debut at number two on the New York Times list. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to say we did this, and you know what I mean. We did this. And I'm just very grateful and very thankful. I'm going to read from the book, but, y'all, I don't even have one. i got to go out and get one. I'll be right back as we do in church. <laughs> okay, I'm back. <laughs> so I thought the way we do this, I thought I'd read a little bit from the book, and then I thought we would talk. You know, we'd just catch up, talk about the book, talk about what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and um, yeah, so how about we do this? It starts with um, a verse from the poet, Claudia Rankin, and I chose it because when I was writing this book, I was really stalled. I didn't, couldn't figure out how to structure it, and I heard Claudia read these lines in one of her poems, and it's just like the book just opened up, and what she said was, can you hear me? All right. This better? Oh, that sounds so loud. Okay. What happens to you doesn't belong to you. Only half concerns you. It's not yours, not yours only. I'm going to start reading from Celestial on the day her husband is taken to prison, and then I thought I would read um, a couple of the letters that they exchange. Half the novel is written in letters. 
What I know is this. They didn't believe me. Twelve people and not one of them took me at my word. There, in front of the room, I explained that Roy couldn't have raped the woman in room 206 because we had been together. I told them about the magic fingers that wouldn't work, about the movie that played on the snowy television. The prosecutor asked me what we had been fighting about. Rattled, I looked to Roy and to both our mothers. Banks objected so I didn't have to answer, but the pause made it appear that I was concealing something rotten at the pit of our very young marriage. Even before I stepped down from the witness stand, I knew that I had failed him. Maybe I wasn't appealing enough, not dramatic enough, too not from around here. Who knows? Uncle Banks coaching me had said, now is not the time to be articulate, Celestial. Now is the time to give it up. No filter, all heart. No matter what you're asked, what you want is for the jury to see why you married him. I tried, but I didn't know how to be anything other than well-spoken in front of strangers. I wish I could have brought a selection of my artwork, the Man Moving series, all images of Roy, the marble, the dolls, and a few watercolors. I would say, this is who he is to me. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gentle? But all I had were words which were light and flimsy as air. As I took my seat, not even the black lady juror would look at me. It turns out that I watch too much television. I was expecting a scientist to come and testify about DNA. I was looking for a pair of handsome detectives to burst into the courtroom at the last minute, whispering something urgent to the prosecutor. Everyone would see that this was a big mistake, a major misunderstanding. We would all be shaken but appeased. I fully believed that I would leave the courtroom with my husband beside me. Secure in our home, we would tell people how no black man was really safe in America. Twelve years is what they gave him. We would be 43 years old when he was released. I couldn't even imagine myself at such an age. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in the way that only a grown man can cry, from the bottom of his feet up through his torso and finally through his mouth. When a man wails like that, you know it's all the tears he was never allowed to shed, from Little League disappointment to teenage heartbreak, all the way up to whatever injured his spirit just last year. As Roy howled, my fingers kept worrying a rough, rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with the key, after the door was open, however it was open, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot, and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but a white slip. Somebody pushed me through the ground and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up showing everything to everyone as my tooth sank into the soft skin of my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots. Husband, wife, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder.
And next, these are the letters that, um, this is a letter she writes to him. Dear Roy, I'm writing this letter sitting at the kitchen table. I'm alone in a way that's more than the fact that I'm the only living person within these walls. Up until now, I thought I knew what was and wasn't possible. Maybe that's what innocence is, having no way to predict the pain of the future. When something happens that eclipses the imaginable, it changes a person. It's like the difference between a raw egg and a scrambled egg. It's the same thing, but not the same at all. That's the best way I can put it. I look in the mirror, and I know it's me, but I can't quite recognize myself. Sometimes it's exhausting for me to simply walk into the house. I try to calm down, remember that I've lived alone before. Sleeping by myself didn't kill me then, and it will not kill me now. But this is what loss has taught me of love. Love makes a place in your life. It makes a place for itself in your bed. Invisibly, it makes a place in your body, rerouting all your blood vessels, throbbing right alongside your heart. When it's gone, nothing is whole again. Before I met you, I was not lonely, but now I'm so lonely that I talk to the walls. They said you can't receive mail for at least a month. Still, I'll write to you every night. Yours, Celestial. And then I will read one of his letters back to her. Dear Celestial, I don't know that I've written a letter to anyone since I was in high school and assigned a French pen pal, and that whole thing lasted about 10 minutes. I know for sure that this is the first time I ever wrote a love letter, and that's what this is going to be. Celestial, I love you, I miss you, I want to come home to you. Look at me, telling you all the things you already know. I'm trying to write something on this paper that'll make you remember me, the real me, not the man you saw standing in a broke-down country courtroom, broke down myself. I was too ashamed to turn towards you, but right now I wish I had because now I would do anything for one more look. This love letter thing is uphill for me. I've never even seen one unless you count the third grade. Do you like me? Check yes? No? You don't have to answer that. A love letter is supposed to be like music or like Shakespeare, but I don't know anything about Shakespeare. But for real, I want to tell you what you mean to me, but it's like trying to count the seconds on the day on your fingers and toes. Why didn't I write you love letters all the while so I could be in practice? Then I would know what to do. That's how I feel every day in here, like I don't know what to do or how to do it. I've always let you know how much I care, right? You never had to wonder. I'm not a man for words. My daddy showed me that you do for a woman. Remember that time you damn near had a nervous breakdown because it looked like the tree in the front yard was thinking about dying? Where I'm from, we don't believe in spending money on pets, let alone trees. But I couldn't bear to see you fret, so I hired a tree doctor. See, in my mind, that was a love letter. The first thing I did as your husband was to sit you down, like the old folks say. You were wasting your time and your talents doing temp work. You wanted to make your art, so I made it happen. No strings. That was my love letter to say, I got this. Do what you need to do. But now, all I have is this paper and this raggedy ink pen. It's a ballpoint, but they take away the casing so you just have the nib and the plastic tube of ink. I'm looking at it, thinking... 
this is all I have to be a husband with. But here I am trying. Love, Roy. So I thought now we could just talk. I'll take your questions. Y'all can talk to me. I'll talk to y'all. Y'all can talk to each other. We'll start off talking to you with your hand up. Yes, ma'am. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. Yes, ma'am. How are you? Oh, shocking. You know, it was really tricky writing this book. Like, I had to make the decision as to whether or not the man in the story would be, if he had committed the crime of which he was accused, right? I feel really even weird about using words like to say if he was guilty or if he was innocent, just whether or not he had done what he was accused of. Because on the one hand, I felt like I was worried that having a character who was wrongfully incarcerated with by even by using that phrase imply that other people are rightfully incarcerated and I believe with all the corruption in the system and the inhumanity I don't think that you can say this huge percentage of our population has been rightly rightfully so I was real cautious about it but ultimately I decided to say that he was um, that he did not commit the crime of which he was accused because I didn't want the story to end up being a debate as to whether or not he was a good person and not and take attention away from what I was really interested in is in the ripple effects and the triple down effects of you know what happens when people are subjected to the, subjected to the justice system like I don't think that what happens to Celestial and Roy would be different had he committed the had he committed a crime or not the point is that, that they are two people who are in love, who are separated by this system. You know, so I think of Roy as not an innocent person who is incarcerated, but an incarcerated person who is innocent. So I hope that the things I bring up will stretch to the discussion of everyone. Um, I think that I'm hoping that the novel accomplishes two things, at least. One, I hope that it provides a certain kind of comfort for people for whom this is their experience. You know, I think that raising awareness is a, is a different work, but I do think that so many people have loved ones who are incarcerated. People, you know, people you know, like you may not know this about them. They may keep it secret. There's so much shame, and there's just so little ways to talk about it. So I hope that, like in my last novel, Silver Sparrow, I was trying to speak to people who have siblings they have the same dad different mom and they don't connect or they don't know each other to provide understanding there so my primary goal primary audience are people who will say this is my life and then the secondary goal is for people who don't know anything about this to learn something about this but I think like in your head as a writer you have to choose where is your primary goal and my primary goal is with the people
first. I didn't mean to shut it down, though. I was just... <laughs> now, y'all know in my real life, I'm a professor, which means I will start calling on people. I know, Andrea. See? I'm a professor. That's what I do. You see, I looked over here, and I called over her over there. It's only been out a week. It's all right. But you didn't have to make a summer program either. She has a summer program for girls, and she does it for no money. She does it all. Yeah, so let's give her a hand first. <laughs> so when she asked me would I help out like with the project she's already doing, I said yes, but I think each one of you would say yes, right? Okay, so ask them for something after we get done. <laughs> but, I mean, don't you think, though, we have all been helped by people who didn't have to help us. You know, like that's the only reason any of us are sitting here today, all of us. Like it was not set out, like the road was not set out clear for any of us. And like with you, if I, I'm just gonna brag on her just a little bit, I don't wanna embarrass her, but years and years ago, I was asked to sit on a committee to judge writers from, from, Baltimore, from Maryland and like a couple other states, like on the Amtrak corridor, and I read the sample, and it knocked me out. And, you know, we read them blind. We don't know who, who it is. I knew her subject matter. I knew she was talking about Baltimore, but I didn't know her, and I didn't know her work. And it just knocked me out. And I was thinking how important it is that we, as black people, sit on these committees so that we can recognize each other's talent. All I did was recognize your talent. I didn't have to, it, I didn't really do anything. It was very apparent. I just was in the room so that I could put my finger on it, but you did it with what you wrote. And so I want to thank you for your work. Yes, ma'am. Well, she is, she, she, I was on CBS this morning when she announced it, and then we did like a Facebook Live. Have you seen the magazine? I'm surprised there's any left. I think my mama bought them all up, all over the country. <laughs> so if you go to my mother, she's got like 400, and she might sell you one probably. But um, um, it's in the magazine, and this is a weird, like exciting thing that she's doing. She has these Live Your Best Life cruises. And there's going to be book club on the cruise. And so every Holland America cruise has to do a program for the book. Wow. Yeah. And I feel like that's, I feel like one of the exciting things she does is that's a whole new audience for me. Like me, the cruise crowd, you know. 
but I also think that we're working it out as we go along. And you know, I'm sure you've heard that there's a. Then she's working on a movie too. Yeah, she's she she's working on a movie. It's complicated. I don't know much about that movie thing. I almost didn't mention it because I can't answer your questions. I don't understand how a movie happens from this book. Yeah, but it's it's in the works, so it's exciting, right? We're gonna have to all. What are we gonna wear? Well, when I first started, like when I was a student at Spelman, <laughs> you know, I started writing when I was a student at Spelman. I was, you know, I was 17, 18 years old, and I took a class from Pearl Clegg. And um, I wanted to take the class. The class was only available to seniors. I was not a senior. I forged my advisor's signature. <laughs> By the time they realized that it was too late, I was fully entrenched in this class, but I'm so happy that I learned to be a writer at Spelman because I learned the reason that I wanted to be a writer, you know, that I wanted to tell our stories, and Pearl gave me the feeling that telling our stories was enough, like it wasn't like she was like, oh, maybe one day you'll be on a bestseller list, maybe one day you'll win a prize, she never even talked about that, it was all about what your books mean to people, so that's how I started to be a writer, but I didn't go, I went to school for creative writing when I was in my, in my 20s. I literally ran into a woman in an elevator. I like bumped into her and it turned out that she had seen some of my work and she ran a writing program in Arizona. She said, come to Arizona and work with me. I'll be your mentor. And I said, oh no, ma'am, I can't go to Arizona. I said, it's hot out there. <laughs> and this was in the, two th- in the 90s. So I was like, and they don't have the King holiday. <laughs> Y'all remember they didn't have the King holiday in Arizona? I was like, I can't go, they don't have, even have, a, I'm from Atlanta, they don't have a king holiday. And she says, it's only hot in the summer and we have had a voter referendum, so I will have you a king holiday by the time you get there. <laughs> so I went out there and I worked with her, her name is Jewel Parker Rhodes, and I worked with her, and I worked with her, and that's when I wrote my first book about growing up in Atlanta during the child murders. It was a really different time when I wrote my first book. Frankly, black women were not in style. Black women were not in style, so there wasn't like the review attention and all of that. It, I think at that time the thinking was, y'all got Toni Morrison, what more do you want, you know? But I just, kept, I just kept at it. I just kept at it because of what I had learned at Spelman, which is that the whole reason you do it is for your readers. So we may not have been in style nationally, but we're always in style in our own community. And so I, I just did my work, and I just kept going from, from there. And... You know, I learned, I mean, I learned a lot. The industry has changed. You know, all the companies have been conglomerations and such. And before my last book, I was actually, I didn't have a book contract. My other books had been taken out of print. Like, everything had been taken from me. I was so, I was just so depressed because I felt like I had done my best. And it never occurred to me that the books I had could be taken away. I thought the books I had, I had those, and they were taken away. And I think I may have told you this story. Did I ever tell you how I got my, my book contract for my penultimate book, y'all? Okay, so I was given a reading. I was sad. I was depressed. Only reason I even showed up at the event was because I had been invited. And I, frankly, I was the only black person invited. And I felt like if I didn't show up, they would never invite another black person again. You know how you feel like that? I felt like they would say, well, you know that one time we invited one. It didn't even show up. 
So I said, for some, for some young black person to come after me, I'm going to subject myself to this humiliation. So I showed up. I didn't have on cute clothes. I was looking terrible. And I just, I just read through the manuscript. You know, I did a short reading, and I was trying to get out of the room. I just wanted to go to my hotel room and hide. And this, this lady, an older lady, she came up to me, and she says, oh, my goodness, I heard what happened to you. I heard your books are out of print. I heard you can't get a contract. I was like, oh, my goodness, people know. People know. <laughs> You know, I'm already embarrassed, the only black person here, and everybody knows that I'm the one. I was dying, dying, dying. But she was kind of firm. She was small, but she was firm, and she took my hand, and she took me through the crowd, and she put my hand in the hand of a publisher, whom I recognized from when they rejected me. But I was, and so the woman said to the publisher, oh, you should look at her. I think she's talented. And the woman said, what's your book about? And I told her briefly, and I just wanted to get away because I knew, I thought that she would recognize my name. It's like, we already rejected you. But as I was trying to get away, she said, wait a minute, but before you go, tell me. She says, how do you know Judy? And I said, oh, I don't know anyone named Judy. And she says, no, no, I mean, Judy Bloom, who just introduced us. That's how I was. And I looked to tell her, thank you, y'all. And she had vanished into a puff of smoke. And three days later, my career was back. Like, and so I tell this story. You know, I tell this story to my students. Oh, didn't my students here? Okay. I tell this story to my students. And they say, see, it just goes to show you it's all about who you know. But I say, no, the point was that I had finished the book. If I hadn't finished the book, I wouldn't have had anything to, to give. I would tell you how nice Judy Bloom was to try and help me, but I had the book done. And what I learned from that, and I think this is true for everything you do, that even when it's challenging, if you do your part, God will meet you halfway. You just get your part done. Because, I mean, I was, I could not have been more unfortunate in my career at that moment, but I had done my work. I had my work in my hand. And y'all, those books that were out of print, guess what I just heard yesterday? They're, they're going to redo them and put, like, pretty new covers and, and you know, start selling them again. I can't I'm just. <laughs> I really can't believe this is my life, y'all. I, <laughs> yeah, is that it? Is that it, Norwood? That's my Morehouse brother. Hey. And y'all's Morehouse brother, too. Okay. It did. I feel like he's saying, so what took so long? Okay. <laughs> well, okay, so I decided I wanted to write a book and I wanted to engage the subject of wrongful incarceration of mass incarceration, something to do with that issue, right? And sometimes people interview me and they say, oh, but they say, wait a minute, but you know, Avery Duvernay didn't make that documentary till last year. How did you get interested in it? And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> and that to me really shows though that, that there are two different worlds. But so I went to Harvard to do this research. And, you know, they had accepted me. I had a year, and I did all this research. I learned all kinds of things. But I didn't have a story, because you know what? I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an ethnographer. I'm a storyteller. And I didn't have a story. I just, I had information. 
And, you know, they say when you do creative writing, they say you should write about, you're supposed to write about people and their problems. You're not supposed to write about problems and their people. The people have to come first. And I didn't have people. And I was, the clock is ticking, and we had a presentation to do, and I didn't have any writing to show, even though I had been working. I just didn't, I was outraged by what I learned, but I wasn't inspired. And this is when this eavesdropping happened. I was in Atlanta at Lenox Mall, and because I was upset and I needed some some shopping to take the edge off. (laughs) And I overheard this couple arguing. The woman looked beautiful. She was wearing a beautiful coat, the belt, everything. She looked great. And the man, he looked fine, but she looked great. And she said, clear as a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I thought, I didn't know him, but I did feel fairly confident that he would not have waited on her for seven years. (laughs) But I also thought that he was right, that it probably wouldn't have happened to her. But what was interesting to me about their conversation is that he did not answer her question of, would you have waited on me for seven years? He felt like it's a moot point. I wouldn't have to wait on you for seven years. So it's a moot point that he was like, I don't even understand why you're asking that. He couldn't understand why she would need to feel there would have been reciprocity. And I realized, I was like, there, this conflict they're having is fascinating, and I think it's true for talking about incarcerated people, but I think it's true for a lot of things. And, I mean, I feel like the conflicts in this book could happen to anyone. Like, yes, Celestial's husband is incarcerated. They've only been married 18 months. Her daddy's still paying for the wedding when he gets taken away. You know, she says, I was a newlywed. I was still combing the rice out of my hair. Like, they have just gotten married. And the question for her, she's an artist, things are happening, is how much of her life she's going to dedicate to preserving her marriage and how much to chasing her dreams. And that's something, he don't have to be in jail for that to be an issue. And so I think that's what makes the book relatable. And when when I hit on that as the conflict, then I was good. I was good. So... I wrote, I wrote the whole book from her point of view, but it felt like only half the story. It felt like what Claudia said, what happens to you doesn't belong to you, only half concerns you. So then I said, okay, I'm going to write it from his point of view. Because I was writing from her point of view. I was like, it's a woman, her husband was wrongfully accused, and her life moves on. And everyone was like, oh, my God, her life moves on. Like, everyone's just appalled by the book. And I'm not trying to appall people. That's not what I'm, I'm not an appalling business. So I rewrote it from his point of view. There's a man, he's wrongfully incarcerated, and all he wants is his wife and his home back. And that was like rewriting the Odyssey, right? <laughs> I felt like Roy, he, like when he first meets her, he loves that she's independent, but now that he's incarcerated, he really wants the same thing as the Odyssey. And that was written like 400 BC. So he wants it to be 400 BC. So I was like, okay, that's not right. And then I decided to write it from both their points of view. And when I felt they both got to weigh in, I felt like it was almost right. But, you know, he's in prison five years before the lawyer gets him out. That's a long time. So then I introduced a third point of view. Andre. She's known Andre since they were two little babies bathing together in the sink. And so that's her new man. So then it became a love triangle. And when it became a love triangle, I was able to finish it because it was juicy to me. Like it was, because when I write the book, I don't know what's going to happen. And when it became a love triangle, I was like, what's going to happen? And, it, and that's what got me moving, moving, moving until the end. But that took six years because that's a lot of changes. 
I mean, there was one point when I didn't think I was going to be able to finish it. I was thinking maybe I had been given all the books I would be given. And then I worked it out. But it took, I was lucky that my publisher didn't really pressure me. Although my editor lived like four houses down and I would like run into her when I was in the grocery store and I'd be like hiding by the frozen food. <laughs> and I would hear her children saying, I saw her mommy, I just saw her. <laughs> but you know, it all worked out now. Everything's funny now. It was not funny at the time. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I thought that was you. thought the old people were wise. I thought they were tripping. You thought they were wise? <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I did, I am always interested in generation gap, right? Because, I mean, the difference in the generations is this. Celestial and Roy are born 1969. They're, so they're post-civil rights babies. Like Roy says, I don't want my kids to be you know, because when he's thinking about the future, he's like, I don't want my kids to be thinking, just sitting up in the movie theater watching Star Wars and feeling like someone died for you to sit here. You know, like, like it's too much. Like he just wants to be in a world where you can take for granted basic freedoms, where you don't have to feel grateful every day that you wake up. You know, that's the generation gap where the, uh, the older characters are all like, I wouldn't be able to go to a movie. Like they want the younger generation to feel constantly aware of progress but I think real progress is when you aren't thinking about progress anymore you know like the when the door is open so wide that you don't even know there was a door there and I feel like that's the difference and I do talk to old people and I do kind of want to tweak their belief system a little bit <laughs> but I also love them so I try to write them with love without necessarily full-on co-signing their 400 BC ideas <laughs> yes ma'am Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. And I'm glad that you thought it was, my whole mission is I like to write a book that people can read. You know, like I don't want to write a book that my sister can't read. And so it means a lot to be accessible. It means a lot to me. Um, it reminds me of the work of the great poet Lucille Clifton in that, she always wrote a poem. You didn't have to be a critic of poetry to read and to be moved by her poetry. All you had to do to read her poetry was to have a heart. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Let me get my little men in black thing and erase that. We're going to act like that didn't even happen. Yes, ma'am. Don't look at her. Don't even look.
You know, I, when I was doing the research, really, again, it wasn't even the wrongful part. Because when I was, I read, this is really interesting oral history book called Surviving Justice, put together by David Eggers, and his oral histories of men who've been wrongfully incarcerated. And one thing that was interesting when I read it is that they didn't really spend that much time on the wrongful part. They were mostly prison abolitionists. They didn't think that anyone should be subjected to that. So that was, also, that was interesting to me that, that wrongful wasn't the push. But the thing that I used mostly in the book was what I like to call the minutia of deprivation, all the little things that make you feel like your life has been taken away, not the horrific things that you see on that. What's that thing that comes on in the middle of the night after MSNBC goes off? It's like a, it's like a reality show and everybody's in prison. You know those shows? Yeah, like instead, like one, this is a small detail, but I couldn't get rid, couldn't get out of my mind a man who spoke about how much he desired fresh fruit while he was in prison. Just He just wanted, it wasn't a fresh, I think it was a tomato he wanted. He just wanted a fresh tomato. And that's just such a mundane thing. And it just seems so emblematic of what he was deprived of. And, you know, I think about, I check into a hotel, there's a basket of fruit. I take it, I don't take it. I leave it in the hotel room. Sometimes I eat it. Like, I just, it's nothing. That to be in a situation where that nothing is such a something, for me, felt like a metaphor. And so it was those little details that I pulled through that I felt made it clear to the reader how much the characters had suffered. But when you read a book, you experience vicariously what the readers, what the characters experience. And it was not my desire to traumatize or even re-traumatize my reader with excruciating details in the text. Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you. How did you learn to craft dialogue? Well, I'm a, I'm a terrible eavesdropper. I've already confessed to that. And I read it out loud to see if it sounds like something someone would say. If I read it out loud and it's getting kind of chewy, you know, like I can't, if I can't get the words out, the characters can't get the words out. It takes a long time to do it that way, but I think that makes it more real. But I listen to people, and I also, I don't, change, I don't correct their grammar. That's important. I think a lot of times you start messing with their grammar, you start getting respectable within the dialogue, then the story starts to feel like the characters are not being free, but they're working for you, and you have to let them be free. Thank you. They wouldn't let me. They don't like the author to do it. You know why? The author will not take direction. So the, the audiobook people say, I think that should be sadder. And the author's like, no, actually, it shouldn't be. It's a, so they like to get a professional in there and knock it out. But um, I chose the woman, um, Issa Davis. She's an actress. I met her at a reception, and I just was eavesdropping. And... <laughs> I just love the sound of her voice. So I got, you know, except you get your little plate. I got my little plate and I like eased over by her. And then I made up some little conversation to have. And then I was like, you have such a great voice. Do you do voice acting? And she said she would. And I was really, I was really grateful for it because I think she did a great job. The dude, they found him. I don't know where he came from. But I think he's good, right? Uh-huh. 
Really? I didn't listen. I, okay. Okay. Good to know. Oh. All right. <laughs> the next one is yours. I didn't know that. Oh. Yes. I do. Yes. Well, you know, I teach, right? I teach creative writing. And I know there are a lot of people who say they can't get their work done because of their teaching, but my students help me get my work done. Because with my students, I'm talking about writing all the time. Writing is always in the air. I can never, I can never put it on the back burner. So I, I try to figure out how I can make my professional life and my writing life work together and not think of them as separate things. But um, that said, it's for people with day jobs... I think it's really problematic the way we tell people you have to write every day if you're going to be a writer. Have y'all ever heard it, how people say writers write every day? And that makes people who are busy, people who have kids, people who have jobs, people who are caring for elders, it makes them think that they can't write a book because they don't have every day. But it is my opinion, it's just my opinion, though, that the things that make it where you can't write every day are the things that make your story important. You're busy, you're doing things, you're in the world, you're interacting with people. And I believe that if you... When I'm really busy, I just try to spend the amount of time that other, you know, other people go to the gym three times a week, you know, while the time that other people are at the gym, if you can spend that much time writing your book, you'll get it done. Y'all so quiet. Y'all sleepy? You hungry? What is it? Are y'all curious about those pralines that I promised you? Are you? Okay, we'll get back to that. Okay. I did. Tony Morrison all day. <laughs> like I love Tony Morrison. Like my feelings about Tony Morrison are slightly it's a little much. I even have a little jar of dirt from the front yard of where she grew up. And I shake it sometimes. <laughs> it cheers me up. But I'm really excited about a lot of young writers too. I'm really excited about the diversity of stories in this new generation of black writers. These kids are writing all kinds of stuff. They're writing fantasy. They're writing horror. They are showing out in the young adult world. They are, like, breaking records in poetry. I mean, I do feel like we're in a renaissance right now. Always keep the people in your, in your mind as you write. E you know, even if you achieve some kind of success in a different kind of sphere, that may be divorced from the people you're writing about. If you are true in the work, the work will reach the people it's supposed to reach, I think. Um, I think this fear, the fear that if you're doing your work or if, if fear, it's kind of almost like even also a fear of success that it will somehow keep you from your original heart project. It's just a way, it's just, in some ways it's almost like it's just your mind messing with you. It's not a real problem. You know, it's almost like, you ever meet those people who are terrified to send their work out because they think they're going to be plagiarized? You ever meet those people who are like, when I send my work out, what if they steal my work? I'm like, ain't nobody going to steal your work. <laughs> nobody is stealing poetry. But, but, there's, but it's an emotional, it's a fear. Like, it's just a fear. But, like, if you just be yourself, and not, I mean, not to advocate for Rutgers at Newark, we are the most diverse MFA program in the country. Our program is... Um, our faculty is 75% um, teachers of color. I'm here. I'm super black. <laughs> well, we 
can talk more afterwards, though, for real. Because you're at Morgan State with, um, with Dr. Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard was my teacher. He was my teacher. He was my, he was my mentor. I feel very grateful for him. Hey, Dr. Hubbard. <laughs> I'll do one more, and then I have to tell you all about my nephew right here who brought his pralines for us to have for Valentine's Day. <laughs> he is a, his name is Neil Arp. He is a Morehouse man, and he made these candies himself. He made them for us to have Valentine's. But he will put them out, like I guess on that table out there. Yeah, yeah, and then y'all can have them. They are fantastic and just in time for the day after Mardi Gras. So everybody, this is my beloved nephew. <laughs> he's like Morehouse class of yesterday, like he's young. Okay, so she said... Thank you, everybody. Y'all don't know how much this means to me. Like I said, when I wrote my first book, and I was on my first book tour, which is just like, not, like now I'm going on a tour with 30 stops. When I, my first tour, I was given five tour stops, and this was one of them. And these ladies worked so hard to get people to come hear me, an unknown writer, you know, with my first book, and it made me feel at home. And like I said, I will always come back here for every book. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Toriari. Let's give it one more hand. Our new Oprah Book Club edition. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.